Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years' experience with classic, vintage, sport, and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years' experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc., 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, a.m. 1340. Hi, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. If you'd like to play golf, Magnolia Valley Golf Club is offering some specials this week. Give them a call up there at 727-847-2342. They have a 9-hole executive course, and they have an 18-hole par 72. And they've got great food on the 19th hole. So call my friend Pete at 727-847-2342. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. All right, ladies and gentlemen, start your engines! Fasten your seatbelts and get ready for fun. The gumball rally has begun! The gumball rally. And all out. Anything goes. Absolutely illegal race. From Times Square to the Pacific Ocean. No catalytic converter and no 55 mile an hour speed limit. The next time out, I'm going to make sure you get a driver's license. 35 magic hours flat out against the red line. It's not a risk, it's a challenge. The drivers come in all shapes, sizes, and sexes. Hey, slow that thing down! If you catch me, you can have me. From all walks of life, all over the world. The first rule of Italian driving. What's behind me is not important. But in the Gumball Rally, the cars are the stars. Camaro, Corvette, Cobra, Porsche, Ferrari. Rolls-Royce, Kawasaki, they go over, under, around, and through, anything that stands between them and the finish line. It's a mad, 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 mad world on wheels. Come on, this is a race, man. Some things are more important than winning. So fasten your seatbelts. What's the matter with you? The Gumball Rally has begun.
Okay, listeners, welcome, and you are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your host, Robert. Boy, we got a great show for you tonight. Hey, Cedric, how you doing? Good evening. Good evening. <laughs> I want to drink your blood. Blah. blah, blah. No, that's, we'll save that for Halloween. So, no, wait, this would be your first show of the year in daylight savings time. No kidding. Yeah. That, that messed everybody up Sunday. It's all. <laughs> yeah, actually, I... I was almost late here to the Tan Talk Radio. Now, how did that happen? I'm not sure, but okay. Anything's possible. But anyway, hey, we got a couple cool songs tonight. We got a really, really, really amazing guest. As a matter of fact, this is his second visit with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm looking forward to having him on. He's also a friend of mine, and he's a, he's a true legend. He really is. This gentleman's cool. You'll appreciate him tonight. I'll tell you what we'll do. Uh, let's go ahead and, uh, let's see, let's go ahead and fire up that first song and then I'll get the chit chat for a little bit and, uh, we'll be right back. This is a cool song, Santana Mirage.
Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kirk at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Car sent you. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radiant Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great place to eat right on the main part of Clearwater Beach. Located at 333 South Gulfview Boulevard. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill has two floors of food, drink, and fun. They have daily specials, happy hour, and nightly entertainment. Their menu caters to seafood lovers as well as land lovers. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, 727-608-2065. They're open in the morning for breakfast until 1 a.m. So stop by and visit my friends, Turtle, Eddie, and Polly, and all the girls and staff at Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill. That's 727-608-2065. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you never know, you might get a free drink. That's Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill on Clearwater Beach, 727-608-2065. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, race fans, we are back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Boy, did I have some fun this past weekend. Last week, if you recall, we had Bill Warner on the radio show. He is the founder and promoter of the Amelia Island Concourse. Let me tell you about the Amelia Island Concourse. This is one of those events that you need to put on your bucket list if you've never been there. The caliber of cars that show up at this particular venue, the people that show up at this particular venue are unbelievable, amazing. These are the people that you read about in magazines or you've seen on TV, or if you know your history, they're in your history books, okay? The cars, the cars are absolutely amazing. You'll see cars there from the turn of the century to modern-day cars, and every car is by invitation only or they are hand-picked. You will see cars there that are from the turn of the century to modern-day classics. You'll see cars from the brass era, which is basically pre-1915. You'll see Mercers. You'll see Ford Speedster runabouts. You'll see Franklins. You'll see early Cadillacs, turn-of-the-century Rolls-Royces. Then you move up into the 30s, okay? Then you're going to see some Duesenbergs, some Cords, some Auburns, just amazing stuff, okay? Packards, you know? Ask the man who owns one, as they used to say. Then from across the pond, you'll have Mercedes-Benzes, you'll have Maybachs, you'll have Delahays, you'll have Delages, you'll have Bugattis, vintage Bentleys. Just amazing aristocratic cars, stuff that you only see in magazines, but here at Amelia Island, you get to see them in person, okay? Then we move into the 50s. You'll have Cunninghams, you'll have Allards, you'll have Porsches, you'll have Ferraris. You will see not one, but multiple 300 SL Mercedes-Benz Gullwings, Roadsters, Jaguars, 120s, 140s, 150s, maybe even the rare D-type and an early C-type, just Unbelievable cars. If you are a sports car enthusiast, 
out of the 50s, you can certainly, most definitely, appreciate these cars. On the domestic side, we've got Fords, Chevrolets, Cadillacs, Lincolns, even Chryslers, Corvettes, and Small Birds. You will even see vintage race cars, Formula One cars, Indy cars, road race cars, drag race cars, experimental race cars, one-off race cars. If you're a race car fan, there's probably something here that's really cool. Oh, yeah. Hey, and let's not forget motorcycles, vintage motorcycles from the turn of the century to probably somewhere in the mid-50s. You'll see early Harley-Davidson's, Indians. You'll see Henderson's. You'll see BSAs. You'll see Vincent Black Shadows. You'll see Triumphs. You'll see Excelsiors, BMWs, Pooks, Munch, Zundup, and more. You'll even see a few Wizards or two. Just really, really cool stuff. There is something here for everybody. Okay, now let's talk about some of the personalities that spend some time there at Amelia Island. Here's who you could potentially run into. Carol Shelby, Dan Gurney, Sam Posey, Bobby Rahal, Jim Hall, Richard Petty, Junior Johnson, Johnny Rutherford, Pete Brock, Vic Elford, Brian Redmond, Derek Bell, Barry McGuire, Corky Coker, Brock Yates, and Bob Varsha, just to name a few. That almost reads like the who's who's list of some of the guests that have been on Nostalgic Radio and Cars. How about that? Something else that's a lot of fun for the participants of the concourse is the police-escorted drive around the island. That's a lot of fun, and if you happen to be lucky and you're standing along the side of the road, it's a great photo op. Another thing that they have there at Amelia Island is what they call these test drive programs. So manufacturers like Porsche, Mercedes, BMW, Aston Martin, Jaguar allow people, guys like us, to basically get behind the wheel of these high-dollar exotics and take them out for a couple-mile run. That's a lot of fun, too. You can put your whole family in there. You can drive around. You're gone for about 10, 15 minutes, some cases 20 minutes, depending on traffic. And, boy, I'll tell you what, you come back with a whole new perspective on high-line cars. You never know. You might drive away with one. Well, you'd have to buy it first. The other two events that took place at Amelia Island were the auctions. The arm auction, which was held on Saturday, the preview was on Friday, had between, oh, I'd say 75 to 100 cars there. I mean, some of the finest pre-war classics, classic, vintage sports car, road race cars, motorcycles, you name it, it was there. And so were the bidders. Also going on right down the road at the Plantation Inn was the Gooding Auction. And yes, that's where yours truly was hanging out. Since I am a part-time rider for Sports Car Market, I was working on my auction analysis reports for Sports Car Market, the most comprehensive publication that brings you the latest and greatest on all the auction results of all the auctions around the world. It's definitely a good read, and it'll bring you up to speed on what's happening in the collector car market. How's that for a plug? Some of the cars that you could find at a Gooding auction were absolutely amazing. I mean, they had a 1912 Ford Model T Speedster that was totally recreated out of original period-correct thoroughbred parts. Okay, They had a 1975 Porsche 935 that was the works car, the first 930 designated Porsche ever built. The cars that went to the Gooding auction were absolutely flawless. They sold 71 cars out of 77 and grossed over $36 million in one day. That's an amazing amount of money. The 1912 Ford Model T Speedster recreated out of all original NOS thoroughbred parts. Sold for $22,000 before fees. A 1955 Porsche 550 RS Spider, similar to the one that James Dean drove, sold for $3.5 million. The car that broke the bank was a 1973 Porsche 917 30 can-am car 
All right, very similar to the one that Penske and Donahue used to drive back in the early 70s that won consistently. Scared the pants out of everybody. But anyway, this was a 91730. This was a little bit later, improved version. It was two years newer. It sold for $4.4 million. There was a 1948 Tucker that sold for $1.2 million. There were some bargains there, though. A 1965 Shelby. Sold for 175000 Those cars are usually well in the 200 range, okay? A 1957 Thunderbird sold for just a hair under 50000 bucks. A 1970 Ferrari 365 GT 2 Plus 2. What a stunning-looking car. Sold for $125,000. It's rare to find a real Enzo Ferrari prior to 1970 that's less than two hundred grand. This is a real 12-cylinder 5-speed car. What a beautiful piece. Anyway, all in all, i got to tell you guys, it was a great event. So be sure and put Amelia Island on your list of places to go, things to do, and people to see for next year. Okay, now for some updates. Sebring this weekend, okay, the 60th running of the 12-hour Sebring. Okay, next weekend we got the St. Pete Grand Prix, okay? At the end of the month, we've got Festivals of Speed. On Friday night, they've got the Jet Pork. On uh, Saturday, they've got the poker run for all the big boats. So they're down there at the marina in St. Pete. And then, of course, on Sunday at Vinoy Park, they got the big uh, car show and bikes. And also, Festivals of Speed, which is a three-time event uh, during the year. The big one being in the fall, December 2nd, okay, held at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. They are going to have their first concourse, okay? They may have an auction as well, but they're going to have their concourse. So if you get a chance, put that on your calendar because that is going to be the next up-and-coming event in the state of Florida, okay? And I want to say a special shout-out to my friend Doug over at the Sign Shop. Give Dougie a call. He builds, he's um, building, he's making our decals and our poster and some of our other stuff that we got going on. So give Dougie a call at the sign shop, 727-392-4852. That's 727-392-4852. And also a big shout out to my friends over at Forte's Inboard and Auto Connection. If you need your classic car fix or your ski boat or your inboard boat, you want to take your boat down to Forte's Inboard and Auto Connection. They do some of the best work. They're very meticulous. Don's been at this for a while. It's a family business and they do a great job and they will definitely take care of you. So give them a call. Their number is 727-544-6440. That's 727-544-6440. And it's getting down to that time. Let's go ahead and run these other commercials real quick, and then let's uh, bring our guest on. Looking forward to it. Hey, listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great pizza shop right here in downtown Clearwater, Bro's Pizzeria, voted number one in the city of Clearwater. They're located at 547 South Fort Harrison Avenue. They have great New York-style pizza, as well as delicious lasagna, spaghetti and meatballs, menicotti, linguine. And if you're in the neighborhood for lunch, they have great hot and cold sandwiches and appetizers. So call 727-441-6025 for takeout and deliveries, or stop by for a veal parmesan dinner and a nice glass of vino. That's Bro's Pizzeria. Check out their website and watch my friend Olti create a spectacular pizza before your very eyes. What would you like on your pizza? Call Bro's Pizzeria, 727-441-6025. That's 727-441-6025. And tell them Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. As most of you know, I'm in the car business, and often I need cars towed. Well, Kotaka's Towing has all the trucks and equipment to meet your needs. Whether it's long distance, short distance, or just around the corner, they can get it done. Kotaka's Towing, located at 1141 Court Street in Clearwater. Also, they have a full-service repair and body shop to meet all your automotive needs. So give my friends Lefty and Joey a call at Kotaka's Towing at 727-447-1952. And be sure and mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you might get a discount. Discount. 
510 you're looking at has endured more than four and a half years of this at the Bob Bondurant School of High Performance Driving, Ontario Motor Speedway. If a Datsun 510 with minor modifications can take this kind of abuse that long, who knows how long a new 510 will last out there. Drive a Datsun, then decide. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and it's just about time to introduce my special guest for the evening. Let me tell you about this gentleman. He's a designer, well-known, in fact, a car builder, well-known, in fact, a team owner, well-known, in fact, an author, well-known, in fact, a photographer, well-known, in fact. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show my friend, the prodigious Peter Brock. Peter, are you there? I am, Robert. Boy, that's a hell of an intro. <laughs> <laughs> it's all true, though. Well, thank you. I really like the music you came on with. Mark Knopfler is one of my favorite uh, guitarists in the world. Super, super. You don't have to know him by any chance, do you? No, uh, but I know he's a car fan, and uh, he's got a McLaren uh, F1, and uh, he's, he's really a car guy. 
That's super. That's good. We got to start getting some of those. Uh, I've been chasing uh, Jeff Beck and uh, Billy yeah, Gibbons. Absolutely, yeah. So, but at any rate, so uh, well, I just saw you this past weekend at Amelia Island. What did you think? What was your uh, what's your summary of the event? Well, you know, Bill Warner puts on probably the greatest contour uh, in the country, if not the world, because it's really a car guy show, and it's been 17 years now. Uh, I helped Bill get that thing off the ground, and uh, he does it almost single-handedly with a great, great group of volunteers, and the show just gets better every year. I, I, I'm just amazed at how he seems to pull in all those great cars, and then the last few years, he's he's had these panel discussions and manages to bring in some of the most interesting people in the world. And it's a sellout crowd. We had um, 1,600 people in, in the ballroom there this time uh, just just to talk about old times. Uh, you know, it was really, really great stuff. Uh, it was the Cobra Ferrari Wars uh, was the subject this year. And he got Mauro Forgieri, who is the... Uh, the team manager for Ferrari to come over and um, uh, to talk to us about the, the Ferrari side of it. And of course, I was there with uh, with Bob Bondurant and uh, Charlie Egaplu, who was the uh, top crew chief on the uh, on the Cobras during those years. And we just had a great time uh, talking about that old stuff. Well, that was one of the things I alluded to earlier in the show, and then last week that the panel discussions or symposiums, seminars, whatever you want to call them, they're just to be able to sit back and hear you guys, you legends, talk about the old times and the stories and give, you know, fact-by-fact fact, uh, uh, details is just amazing. That's, that's, it's, that's priceless. It really is. Well, you know, one of the neat things about it is that, you know, that in this case we were talking to uh, the, uh, the opposition and to get their point of view on what it was like in retrospect after all these years have gone by, you know, it's like 40 years have gone by. And, you know, we've got tremendous respect for those guys as we did during the time that we were racing against them. But even more so now um, that we've seen what really occurred, because you can never really judge what's going on at the time it's going on, because it's it's what you're involved in. It's only as time passes that you begin to see, you know, what the importance of uh, the Ferrari GTO was or what Mauro Forgieri designed during those days and, and Really, it, it was just a high point in, in Ferrari design. And it was an era when um, innovation and ideas were really the important part of racing. It's gotten so over-regulated these days that it really gets, uh, I think, sort of boring. Was Would Mar- would it be fair to say that Mario Forgieri, forgive me for not spe- pronouncing his re- name it's correctly, Mauro. M A U R O Mauro. Okay, Mauro. Would he would he have been your counterpart at Ferrari, kind of like what you did at Shelby? No, I I would say that he would be closer um, to say Carol Smith or even Shelby, who was a little bit behind the uh, behind the wall there uh, directing things. But he was really the one man guy that directed Ferrari, and he was uh, Ferrari's eyes and hands in, in direction on the racetrack, because, as you know, Enzo Ferrari very, very seldom ever went to races himself. He would always uh, stay back at the factory and uh, await the report. And so Mauro was his guy who not only designed the cars but uh, directed the team and and, uh, chose the drivers and, and, you know, set the stage for Enzo. Interesting. I know that the the consensus was that 
Ferrari, the Ferrari guys were saying Louis, uh, Luigi Cianetti Jr. was there, and he said, you know, if we had the horsepower, if we had the cubic inches, if we had the displacement, we would have been more competitive. How true is that? Well, you have to remember that the you know, Ferrari V12s were racing engines, and they could turn those at extremely high RPMs. So they were making about the same horsepower that we were. Um, the uh, Cobras, of course, ran a 289 Ford production pushrod engine, and in those days we were getting about 385 horsepower, which is just about what the GTOs were getting. So the cars were very, very equal. They were just uh, approached in a different design manner. And the fact that we were doing it with a production-based engine was what really uh, made it so interesting for the American racing fans. Hmm. Well, let's jump over to uh, some of the stuff that you've done. Now, we know that you designed the Daytona Coupe, uh, and you can you know, definitely lay claim to that. But prior to that, you were involved with uh, um, the design of the Stingray, right? So tell us a little bit about that, because you were a GM for a while with uh, Larry yeah. Shinoda and uh, Zora Dunduff, right? And uh, Bill Mitchell, who was the director of uh, design uh, during that transitional period from uh, Harley Earl, who was really the father of American automotive design and the father of styling. And he had uh, led uh, GM uh, styling during that period. And then his hand-picked successor was Bill Mitchell, who was coming up as vice president of design. So in 1957, uh, when Corvette came to Sebring, uh, with the SS Corvette, with a project led by Zora Duntoff. Um, it was shut down almost immediately by the uh, AMA, the American uh, Automotive Manufacturers Association, because they thought that uh, all American automobiles were, were leaning too far towards performance, and they wanted to back that off. And also it was just the amount of money that was being spent on performance development. But, of course, this was the thing that made... Uh, the improvements in, in American automobiles so significant during that period of time because prior to that time it had been pretty stagnant. So really what had been done and what racing always does is it develops uh, safer, better automobiles. But uh, the management didn't feel that way and uh, cut the program out. And there were two two uh, cars built at that time. One was the test car, which we call the Mule, and then there was the finished car, which is the Corvette SS, so actually, the mule went down ahead of time in uh, '57 to uh, practice there, and uh, John Fitch was the uh, leading that program for uh, General Motors at that time. And he had uh, Piero Taruffi had signed up to drive with us as well. But they'd also asked uh, Juan Manuel Fangio to test drive the car and to Sterling Moss to drive the car, and each of them drove the car. And Fangio drove the car actually in practice and broke the lap record, which was really stunning. This is the mule car, the test car. Which track and, uh, was this? Was... Go ahead, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Which track Which track was this that was the test he was this going? This was at Sebring. At Sebring, okay. okay. When uh, General Motors came down to go racing, and they brought uh, a couple of production cars. Of course, the SS, which was the uh, sort of the uh, ultimate weapon at that time. And it was built as a styling exercise uh, by Harley Earl. And then when the program was shut down, uh, the cars were sort of mothballed, and Bill Mitchell, who was uh, Harley Earl's uh, chosen successor, uh, arranged to buy the car for $1 mm. uh, from General Motors, uh, provided that uh, he raced it on his own. So he wanted to set his own uh, his own styling trend there at General Motors at the time, 
and so the the uh, the mule body was stripped off, and uh, he came in with a bunch of ideas to uh, design what he would call the new era Corvette. And he had, uh, like most of the top designers uh, that led the studios at that time, would go over to the European auto shows and see what the trends were uh, and what cars were coming along. And he came back with a with a little sheaf of photographs in his pocket uh, and laid them out uh, to us down in the research division of styling. And the cars that had really influenced him at that time were the Alfa Romeo uh, Disco Volante and uh, a Fiat Abarth. Uh, and a Stangolini record car. And all of these cars were slightly similar in that they had a very crisp line, what they call a belt line, around the middle of the car, and then they had slightly raised blisters over each of the wheels. And that became the theme uh, that Bill uh, proposed to us as designers and said, this is the direction I'd like to see um, what you guys can do in uh, setting up a new Corvette. So... uh, he assigned that uh, project to us in the research division, the styling. And, of course, there were you know, dozens of drawings put up all over the wall, and, and he came in about a week later and carefully walked around the room and looked at everything. And, and uh, he picked a sketch that I had done off the wall and said, this is really the direction that we want to take, and uh, I want every one of you guys to see if you can do something better than this. So we all tried a lot harder to do that, and uh, but he kept coming back to that one sketch. And in the end, uh, if you look at the, the sketch, it was done in the November of 57. It's almost perfectly the 1963 uh, Corvette, uh, which uh, Larry Shinoda did the production version up in the, uh, in the production studio. But the Stingray Racer, or the Mitchell uh, Corvette, it was called, both those names, was really designed down... Uh, in 57 uh, through 58 in the research division of styling by myself and a partner of mine, another junior designer named Chuck Pillman. And uh, uh, I did the coupe version, and then Mitchell said, we don't have much time to do a coupe for a Sebring, so let's do a Roadster. And uh, so side by side, uh, Chuck and I worked on the car. And then uh, as that got a little bit closer, that car went upstairs to a secret studio, because remember, during this whole period of time, the AMA ban was still in force, and there was no performance supposed to be done at all at General Motors. But uh, Bill Mitchell, uh, the rebel that he was within uh, General Motors styling, had built a secret studio upstairs to uh, work on this Corvette, and uh, the car was uh, designed within that studio, and he brought Larry Shinoda in to... uh, finish up all the details on that car. And then, of course, Larry continued on with that car because after it was shown, it became so popular and became really uh, Bill Mitchell's trademark automobile and one of his favorite cars to drive uh, that eventually morphed into the 63 Stingray uh, production car. Interesting. Uh, just a side note here. Um, Bordenay was, what it, was at Ford at the time. Was he been kind of like uh, Ford's counterpart to Bill Mitchell at GM? Yes, yes, he was. And actually, he built uh, those two cars that routed Amelia Island, the, um, the Bordenay Cobra Coupe, which was just, I still think, one of the most beautiful cars ever designed. But, of course, um, Ford management uh, was into making uh, a, a larger car out of a T-Bird. They had not been as successful with the 55 T-Bird because that was kind of a chick car, a secretary's car. 
whereas the Corvette was really a guy's car. And it had not sold as well. But when they morphed that car into the larger T-Bird, it outsold the Corvette about three to one. So they knew that they were on the right track uh, with the, with a car that had more than two seats in it. So that was really probably the uh, the main reason that the uh, the Bordenay Cobra was never built. Oh, really? That's too bad, because like you said, they were pretty cool cars back in the day. Did you ever get a chance to meet him, by the way? Uh, Bordenay? No, I never did. I was over at General Motors, and of okay. course, uh, we were on opposite sides of town and in, in, uh, in uh, opposing factions in the war. Did did the guys from General Motors and the guys from Chrysler and the guys from Ford, did you guys not associate much, or did you kind of fraternize a little bit and kind of have some sort of, you know, casual friendship? If we'd gone to school together, uh, we would, but, uh, you know, nobody ever really discussed, uh, you know, what we were doing. Uh, everything was very, very secret in those days, and, of course, it, it still is. Industrial espionage is, is still a big business, so uh, you wouldn't want to risk your reputation by... Uh, fraternizing with the opposition, even though that you might be have been good friends at the school together. And most of the guys at that time came out of the uh, Art Center College of Design, uh, which is now in Pasadena. But at that time, that was really one of the only schools in the world where you could go to study automotive design. So everybody pretty much knew each other, but we stayed apart. Hmm. Interesting. Now, you also, uh, we were talking earlier, you said uh, somehow we got on a subject about uh, George Lucas, and while I was nosing around on the computer here, I found an old clip where it shows a film of you driving what looked like maybe an Elva of some kind uh, at Willis. Lotus 23. Is that what it was? Yep. Okay. Uh, Tell us your relationship uh, with George Lucas now. Well, George um, had wanted to become uh, a race driver. He was uh, really interested in racing. And uh, just prior to his graduation, he uh, got badly hurt in his uh, little car, and he realized that he wasn't really going to be a race driver. So uh, he took up uh, the study of film, and he went down to USC Film School. And uh, while he was there, uh, he'd, you know, he'd come over to Shelby's and hang out a bit, and uh, we became fairly good friends. And uh, during that period of time, as he'd gone through the, the ranks there at USC, and he got up to do his... Uh, his senior project, uh, which was his first directorial debut, so to speak, uh, he came up with the idea to this little film about racing, and it's uh, it's basically a film with with no um, no dialogue but lots of sound, and we shot it over a three day period out at Willow Springs. We borrowed a Lotus Twenty Three, and I drove the car for the film, and it was basically about a guy and his crew go out to the track on their own. Uh, in uh, developing the setup for a car for a coming race to see if they can uh, match a certain time. And I think at that time, uh, 143 was pretty much a record around Willow Springs. Of course, it's much, much faster today, but the name of that film is um, 142.08, I think. And that was the time that, uh, that I eventually set in the film, and that was the record. So it's a struggle of, of developing that car you know, on the track and trying faster and faster lines and spinning out and and getting the frustration of changing things around and and making the car quicker. Wow. So it's a a really beautiful little film, and one of the beautiful things about it is that there's no no language in it at all. It's all visual and sound, mainly the sound of the race car uh, running around the track. And anybody can find that. Just go to Google and... uh, 
punch in George Lucas, Peter Brock, and that film will come up. Yep, that was cool. Now, uh, is George Lucas, is he a real car fan? Is he a car guy? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Okay. Um, he well, could, uh, today, he could have any car in the world he wants, but uh, he's always been a car guy. And, and you saw that in American Graffiti, you know, which was his first big film that he did. And um, if it hadn't have been for that film uh, and the support of uh, Alan Ladd Jr., who came along and uh, backed him to do Star Wars, uh, he reversed the film industry in Hollywood and it became the, the highest grossing picture ever made in Hollywood until, of course, uh, Spielberg came along with E.T. But um, George is uh, really a, a visionary guy, and it was so interesting working with him out there at that time because we spent three days making the 142.08 out at at the track, and I said, "Well, what's your what's your you know what's your ideas for the future, George?" And he he started laying out these ideas about the space odyssey, and of course, the only thing that anybody could relate to at that time was the word Buck Rogers, and which was really a cliche for space at that time. And I'm going, Jesus, that's really a corny idea. This is what I'm thinking to myself. And that was one of the greatest lessons of my life because that that idea of the film that he wanted to make when he was in film school, he already had the idea for doing Star Wars. And here I am thinking it's a corny idea. And it turned out to be the greatest film ever done in Hollywood at that time. That's amazing. So you never, you never, never want to discount anybody's dreams. And uh, George certainly proved that. That's, that's a good story. That's good. Now, wait a minute. Yeah. Now, one more thing. Now, you used to be, when you first started working for Carol Shelby, you were a, a uh, test, uh, you were the uh, instructor out there at Willow Springs, and you drove the GT350 out there. So what kind of times did you turn the GT350 later? Golly, you know, I, I can't remember the times we turned on the development of that, but uh, obviously they were probably a little bit uh, quicker than that because we'd uh, come along. Uh, at least for production, my car, I think we were pretty good on those times. But I did all the original development uh, on the Cobra uh, long before the GT350, and we did that uh, Cobra testing out at uh, Riverside because I had gone to work uh, for Carroll primarily as uh, as instructor for his driving school. That's the way we got together originally uh, to run his driving school, and then he had gotten the distributorship for uh, Goodyear Racing Tires on the West Coast, and I was kind of this gopher, the guy that went over to Goodyear to pick up the tires and pack them up to ship them out to all the people. So we were a very small operation. There was only about three of us at that time, um, Joan, his secretary, and Carol and myself. And that was really the genesis of the whole uh, Shelby American project till the car came in, and then I started doing some of the testing on that. And then uh, Ken Miles came in, and uh, that was really a breakthrough for me because Ken was uh, already a really well-established driver on the West Coast, uh, primarily in small bore cars. But um, he came in and uh, began doing some of the development. And working with Ken out at Riverside Raceway was uh, just like having the greatest driver in the world be your personal instructor for week after week. And really the whole school that I developed for Carroll on the Carroll Shelby High Performance School of Driving um, was really all attributed to Ken because he taught me everything that I used in the uh, formulation of the school. And as then as the school grew, um, Bob Bondurant came on as my assistant, and then John Tamanis, uh, also another well-known driver in Southern California, 
uh, both came on as my assistants. And then as Shelby American grew, uh, Carol decided to cut the school away. We didn't have enough time to do that. And Shelby American. So he uh, cut the school loose, and Bob took it over. And it became the Bob Bondurant School of uh, High Performance Driving. And Bob built it into the really huge success that it is today. Is it true now that when you went to work for Carol Shelby that he didn't know about your previous design background and stuff? No. No, I was working. uh, I had come out uh, from Detroit uh, at the age of 21 because because at that time uh, you couldn't be a race driver with an SCCA license until you were 21. So prior to that point, I'd gone to work for GM. I was 19. I was the youngest guy they'd ever hired. But uh, when I got to be 21, I wanted to move back out to California and start racing. So I, uh, I told I'd bought an old uh, Le Mans uh, team car. It was pretty much a basket case from a guy in Detroit who'd run it for a couple of years, and um, spent my time in, uh, in the evenings rebuilding that car back in Detroit. But it was cold and wet, and there wasn't much racing going on back there. So as soon as I was 21, I made the decision to move back to California and get involved in racing, so I ran my first race at uh, Palm Springs in 1959. And I was working on that car uh, for Max Balchowski, who was a, a famous uh, racer in California at that time, who built specials out of uh, Buicks, and uh, they were called the Old Yellers. And uh, working for Max was, again, another great uh, influence in my life. What was it like being around guys like Juan Fangio and Fitch and the gentleman you just mentioned and Phil Hill and people like that back in the day? I mean, even uh, um, who else um, was well known back then? That there was a. I mean, was 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 that? Did could you grasp the magnitude of who those people were? I mean, did they make uh, a huge presence? Um, like they well, do. They were all they were all local stars at that time. Um, just like the local stars are around here. I mean, you know, say uh, guys like Randy Popes, who's a top club racer around this area at that time, around this area, mm-hmm. uh, or Andy Lally, or any of these guys. Uh, those were the names in the, at that time who were the top guys. You know, uh, Hurley Haywood, Peter Gregg, you know, all these guys were stars during their era here locally, just like those guys were the local stars in their era. The thing was, at that time, that a race driver did more than one thing. He could do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he drove formula cars, he drove sports cars, he drove stock cars. I mean, look at all the things that Dan Gurney has done. Dan was just a top club racer in California, uh, along, you know, with uh, Sweet Savage. You know, all those guys were just, they were just top club racers. And to be around them, uh, we all learned together. It was a, it was a fabulous era. And uh, Dan, of course, went on to Europe and uh, gained fame, as did Carol Shelby when he went over there. Wow. Now, um, when, when you, were, you were at the school for how long did you work as an instructor? At the, what I, was, I guess where I'm going with this is the comparisons between driving at Riverside and Willow Springs. Now, Willow Springs is way out in the desert, right, so to speak? Well, they were both about an equal distance uh, out from Los Angeles, but... Uh, Riverside Raceway was much, much more uh, finished as a, as a racetrack, and it was set up really uh, as a, uh, a spectator course, okay. where Willow Springs has always been kind of a development track out in the desert. And uh, 
the, the weather conditions were never as steady out there. It could be a miserable place to go, or it could be a great place to go. But uh, Riverside was usually uh, pretty good conditions all the time, and it was uh, it was very inexpensive. To give you an idea how little it cost to, to run at Riverside in those days, you'd go out there, sign in, pay $15, and you could run all day long. Jeez. It's just inconceivable today that anybody could run that because the costs of, of insurance and maintenance and everything have gone up so high that it's in, in the thousands of dollars a day to test now. Now, now was Willow Springs more of a technical track than, than Riverside? No, they were equally difficult. Uh, there were two or three turns out at uh, at Willow that were, were very difficult. And, of course, with the wind blowing the dust across the track, uh, it uh, it made it to, it made it pretty skaty when the uh, the dust was across the track and I'd say that uh, Riverside really stayed a lot cleaner but they were both both great race tracks. Wow, All right, let's go fast forward a little bit. Um, one thing we didn't we know about the the Shelbys and the Covers. We know a little bit about the Dotsons, of course. We took, covered that the last time, and we even touched base a little bit on the Hinos that you raised. But what we did cover the last time is how you got involved with hang gliding. Now that's something I've never really I don't know much about flight and uh, and 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 things of that nature. So tell us a little bit about how the whole hang gliding uh, uh, and the manufacturing and all that came to fruition. Well. Um, hand gliding uh, really uh, was um, invented in Australia. Uh, guys had uh, what they call flat kites down there, which they towed behind speedboats. And these were a big, you know, flat kite. Looks pretty much just like something a kid flies. And then um, uh, Francis Rogallo, who was a, uh, a NASA scientist, uh, came up with the idea of, of doing this double conical wing, the flex wing glider. And it was a it was a, a glider uh, that could be packaged in a rocket. So when they came back through space, uh, it would be used sort of as a guided parachute to uh, bring the rockets uh, down into the ocean instead of just a conventional parachute. And then that idea was um, explored even further by some of the guys down in Australia, who built some of the first uh, Regalo type gliders. And then that sport transferred up to um, uh, to California, and these early, early gliders, I mean, they were very, very primitive. The guys were building them out of uh, bamboo, lengths of bamboo, and uh, silver duct tape, and visqueen plastic. And what had happened is that uh, when they were building LAX Airport, um, off to the side they had a giant power plant that they were going to build in there, and consequently they dug this huge hole in the in the beach Area, and they built this giant sand dune that was, oh, like probably four or 500 feet high. We were sitting out there in the beach, and we used to climb up to the top of this uh, sand dune and launch these hand gliders uh, off the side of it. And luckily, the, uh, the glide ratio of the hand glider and the slope off the, uh, off the sand dune were about the same, so you could get about a 100, 150-yard flight from the top of this sand dune all the way down to the beach, but you'd never be more than about, oh, 10 to 15 feet off the surface of the sand. So if anything happened to you, all you did was you fell down in the sand and nobody got hurt. So it was a great training ground uh, for flight. So a lot of guys learned to fly hang gliders off of these, uh, off of this big sand dune out there. 
and that's really the way I, I got started. I had my uh, my race shop there in El Segundo, which was uh, just a few blocks inland from the coast. And I'm driving home one day, and I look out there, and there's this giant sand dune. I've seen them building the thing, and, and there's all these hippies up there flying these hang gliders um, off of this thing. I, I was mesmerized. I stopped, walked up to the top, and watched these guys, you know, jump off the side of this sand dune. And uh, there'd be a lineup of guys that fly down. There'd be another group that are puffing and huffing the way up, carrying their gliders up. They get up to the top, and this guy says to me, hey, man, you want to try this? I'm too tired to jump off right now. And I said, sure. So he explained to me, you know, what you did to control the slider. And uh, I strapped in and ran off down the hill and just got a great flight all the way down to the bottom. And I was, uh, it was the most thrilling thing I've ever done at that time, even more exciting than racing. So uh, I started going out there every every day in the afternoon that I could and, and hung out with these guys as they developed their gliders. And these things were so primitive. I mean, they were really scary, but you, you couldn't get hurt. But some of these guys were now starting to take the things out and go out and fly off of mountaintops. And I was kind of concerned that somebody was going to get, you know, hurt. So I went back to the race shop and, and built up a little handful of hardware uh, that you could, you know, go buy your own aluminum tubing and, and you buy this hardware and you could put your own hang glider together. So I went out there to show it to them. And everybody said, God, that's really cool. Man, we can all build our own gliders now. How much do you want for all this stuff? And I said, oh, about 10 bucks. <laughs> 10 bucks? You are ripping us off. <laughs> and so consequently, nobody wanted to buy this hardware for 10 bucks. So I went back and started building my own gliders, and it turned into the largest uh, hang glider manufacturer in the world, which at that time was called UP, Ultralight Products. I'll be darned. And, uh, and that developed uh, into this giant uh, sport. And we sold gliders all over the world. And uh, we ended up uh, competing internationally. The uh, the World's Cross-Country Championships were held up in the Owens Valley. And uh, to give you an idea, we went from flying off the sand dunes there in El Segundo off a little 300-foot hill, and then we moved farther down the beach, uh, down to Playa del Rey, and we learned to soar back and forth along the cliffs there, and then went out into the mountains. And then when we finally got into the Owens Valley and learned the thermal, uh, we could climb, and we were climbing up to, you know, twelve to 15,000 feet and flying cross-country, and that's where the uh, the World Cross-Country Hang Gliding Championships uh, took place. And uh, we won those uh, seven years in a row with the UP gliders. That's amazing. Now, how long yeah, do you... It, you amazing era, absolutely the most exciting thing I've ever done. So you did quite a bit of that yourself, then? Oh yeah, yeah. I had all the top guys like Larry Tudor flying for me, and then we competed against guys that came from Australia and from Europe and whatever. Not only to fly in the Owens Valley, which is still a great place to fly, um, but uh, we competed against all these guys, and I had a chance, of course, to fly against them. These guys have now it, it become a way of life with them. I'm still running a company. These guys are all professional flyers that are flying for companies, and several other companies grew up out of that. You know, Wilswing and Bennett Gliders uh, and Seagull. They all became uh, international sales of gliders. Wow. And, uh, and we flew all over the world. We went to South America. We went to Europe and, uh, and flew just like surfers do, but it was uh, sky surfing. 
Interesting. We got about uh, a minute left. Um, the when you guys is is that aspect of the sport still fairly competitive? Well, it's turned more into uh, 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 fully collapsible uh, ram air parachutes now, and the reason for that is it's a lot easier if you live in an apartment to just bundle up a ram air parachute and uh, and fly a, a ram air glider, and they they have about the same performance as those early uh, rigid uh, uh, leading-edge gliders that we flew, but they're a lot more practical uh, because if you're going to fly a Regalo-type glider, you have to have some place to transport it and a place to store it. Wow. So people still do fly them, but, uh, and they're very popular here in Florida, too. Guys are uh, towing up and uh, flying all over the place. Well, Pete, I want to thank you for coming on the show. We're just about out of time. I want to thank my guest this evening, Pete Brock. Uh, Pete, you know, next time I have you on the air, uh, we will talk a little bit about your trailers and some of the other cool designs that you're doing. And in the meantime, you're going to be down at Sebring, and if I get a chance, I may be down there. I'm not sure yet. But uh, say hi to your lovely wife, and uh, we'll, we'll definitely stay in touch, and I'll probably see you at some of the upcoming events. And uh, Pete? Great, Robert. Okay, thank- always good to talk to you. Okay. Hang on. Don't hang up just yet. Uh, we're going to be okay. – I want to get you on the phone here for a second. And then, uh, meanwhile, everybody else, stay tuned to Nostalgic Radio and Cars next week at 7 o'clock. In the meantime, stay safe, drive careful, and love your family.